The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Angela Stiles. Angela is a partner at Bracewell LLP. Angela is a former OFPP administrator, and she also served at one point as executive director of the Defense Industry Initiative on Business Ethics and Conduct. Uh, Angela, it's always great to have you on the show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's going. It is. I know. I don't think. I know it's going to be a wide ranging discussion on all kinds of good, interesting, at least for us, <laughs> procurement issues. Because um, it is an interesting, we were talking before the show, it is an interesting time of procurement, um, just with all the various initiatives, um, uh, statutory changes, et cetera, out there, and a new administration as well on top of it. So um, from the DOD commercial item rule to the e-commerce provision, you know, Section 846 of last year's NDA that OMB and GSA are working on, to cloud acquisition, to raising thresholds. You know, what's your take on where we are right now? I think it's an absolutely fascinating time in acquisition right now. I mean, we've both been in this world for a few decades now. And every now and then you see... I have at least. Right. No, I'm, oh. I'm trying to, No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have it. Okay, okay. I'm trying okay. to be... I'm trying to be not, <laughs> but I, you see um, a lot of... Uh, you see a lot of changes over time, but I don't recall a time when we had so much on the table and so many exciting things that I think may really change our federal procurement system for the good. And I'm hopeful that we can all come together, um, industry, um, the executive branch and Congress, and really take advantage, I think, of of the opportunity that's in front of us. I from my perspective, I think you had FASA and FARA, Federal Acquisition Streamlining, Federal Acquisition Reform. There were some good goals in both of those laws, but I don't think those goals were accomplished or achieved over time. We really ended up, I think, creating a procurement system with a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more terms and conditions. It's really being rather hard for the federal government to access the commercial marketplace. And now we're seeing... I think the effects of that, and we're seeing people who really want to change that. They really want to make sure that our federal government gets the benefit of commercial innovation, commercial products, commercial services, um, the best and the brightest, even in research and development and technology. And that's an exciting thing to see. Yeah, well, there's any number of things, the reforms or the greater authority for OTAs that was passed, I think, Two years ago or last year, I can't remember which which NDA it was in, but that the e-commerce provision are all things that are trying are designed to access the federal, mar- I mean the commercial market on behalf of the federal customer in a more efficient, effective way. I'm, I think that's right. I mean, and, and you see provisions too that I think are pretty interesting, like treating um, research and development and what a non-traditional government contractor is doing as a commercial item. Um, some of that really does give greater access to the marketplace in that instance for the Department of Defense. I mean, I think what 
what we have to be wary of, though, is to make sure that that we're we're doing it in a way that makes sense. That it isn't just I worry like the other transactions authority is just saying the procurement system failed. I don't think the procurement system has failed us. I think that there's certain changes that need to take place to have the right controls in place and to have access to the marketplace, but also have a comfort feeling as a taxpayer that our money is being properly spent, that we're being thoughtful about this, that we're getting the best product and the best service, and where it involves things like cybersecurity or our personal information that the government's particularly thoughtful about how that's handled, be that be in the cloud or otherwise. Well, I want to I mean, let's tackle these issues. So it seems like the overarching objectives is more efficient, effective system, greater access to commercial marketplace and innovation that's driven by the commercial marketplace. I think that's sort of the overarching goals. But then comes along, um, you know, I know we were talking about it uh, um, before the show, the new DOD commercial item rule, um, which, you know, that it sort of seems to be swimming against that current? Would that be fair to say? I think so. So I think there's some real disconnects. So you have Congress and the 2018 National Defense Authorization, and frankly, for the defense authorization several years before that, with an extraordinarily clear message to the Department of Defense, you need to break down the barriers, you need to get rid of regulations, you need to access the commercial marketplace. So to take those, uh, the language from the 1617 defense authorizations and to put it into the commercial item rule in the way they did was pretty extraordinary because it simply creates more barriers for DOD to access the commercial marketplace. And it is frankly kind of offensive to companies that provide commercial items, that provide COTS, not necessarily at the prime contractor level. I think most of the big primes are used to dealing with this. It's at the subcontractor level. It's at the lower tier where the primes buy from. That rule is a huge bureaucratic hurdle for the Department of Defense to be accessing the commercial marketplace. And it seems so inconsistent with the actual intent of the Defense Authorization Acts and Congress for the past couple of years. Okay, so Angela, what are some of these hurdles that they've created? Well, they added a new commercial item clause. So if a contract- A new clause. A new clause. (laughs) Guess what? And so instead of getting rid of clauses and certifications and access to audit rights for commercial companies, they added a extensive new contract clause for commercial item contracts. So if a contracting officer at DOD thinks perhaps that he won't have enough competition on a particular contract, he's it's at full discretion to add this clause- And if this clause is in the RFP, a company submitting a proposal must submit a pretty substantial amount of information to support the pricing. It's not certified cost and pricing data. It's other than certified cost and pricing data. But they must submit information to support their pricing, even if there's other competitors, even if there's adequate price competition, even if it's a clearly established market price. And... The government, by simply submitting a proposal, then has access to audit that information and audit that information of any proposed subcontractors that you have. You could have a situation with a proposed subcontractor that has no contract with the federal government and suddenly, by providing information to the prime and submitting it to the government, they get a knock on the door from auditors. Let me take a look to make sure that your pricing of your COTS item is accurate. Um, so that is a very substantial impediment, I think, 
for commercial providers. And is is there any analogous for commercial items for civilian agencies? It's not. It's no. not there, right? It's right. not. It's not there. Right. I mean, of course, the contracting officer, if he's uncomfortable because there was an adequate price competition, adequate price competition should always be sufficient, absolutely. right? Uh, so absolutely. a commercial item is a commercial item. There's a definition and statute, and then the FAR for it. Then you go to pricing. You got to separate the two of them. Um, if there's adequate price competition, the price is fine. If there's not, if you get one offer, well, yes, of course, the contracting officer can ask for more information to support whether the price is fair or reasonable or not. But you shouldn't just require that up front. Right. So, and, you know, and there's a hierarchy in the FAR, right, of the, the information that either the contracting officer is supposed to look in the case of commercial items, right? This uh, this seems well beyond, it, it not seems, it is well beyond What's contemplated by you know by the regulations as they're currently in the FAR as they're currently well, and it's far beyond what they comp- con- contemplated yeah. in the NDAA. The NDAA yeah. was trying to actually reduce the amount of information in that hierarchy of what you could ask for and make it less and less to ask for. They were not; they did not ask for a new contract clause for commercial item contracts. I mean, they, that is just not part of what was in the defense authorization. And so, I think what actually came out is quite inconsistent with what. Congress, the intent of Congress. So, and what was the rationale? Did they provide a rationale in like the preamble or anything? Did any kind of legal analysis that would support the ability to audit in this way? Or um, they said it would create um, efficiencies and be cheaper uh, this way. I mean, it actually, the rule actually says that, um, which is hard to imagine. Collecting and submitting that information in a situation where there is adequate price competition is really going to be a cheaper and more efficient way to do this. Uh, and and that, that's fascinating to me because just, you know, the one of the things we've heard with, and we, this is where you get into the issue of like new administration, there's been a lot of focus on burden, you know, the regulatory freeze, you know, the two for one. What, what two regulations have they eliminated if you want to put this in there? And also just the OIRA looking at burden, um, as, as I understand it, is a much, there's much greater focus on that. So it's, it's fascinating that this this has come out as it has. Well, and it's interesting, too. If you look at the final rule, it, it asserts that there are cost savings from the rule, and there's actually a number in there, but there's no analysis behind it. So it's very hard to tell how they actually came up with a number. And and I'll be honest, I mean, there's been a, a long going, we're talking about, you know, 10 or 15 years yeah. dispute between um, DOD and the inspector general about commercial items and about, you know, the commercial item determination and about fair and reasonable pricing and the blending of those two standards. Um, And so you can feel, you can feel and sense a little bit of the IG's constant pushback in this rule, in this final rule. Right. Despite Congress's intent. Yes. Okay. Angela, uh, we have to take our first break. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP. And we're talking about yeah, the current ebbs and flows uh, of acquisition policy and and some of the key acquisition initiatives across uh, the new administration. Um, you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP, former OFPB, OFPP administrator, um, and uh, which is actually a great you know, reference point for what's going on right now at, G- at OMB and GSA. Um, yeah, OMB and GSA are working together uh, with regard to implementation of Section 846, the e-commerce provision of last year's NDAA, 
um, which would um, you know move towards uh, some commercial e-commerce platforms uh, for the acquisition of products, uh, commercial products by the federal government. And GSA is responsible for implementing it. OMB is overseeing it. So you, if you were there, you would be right in the midst of this, Angela. So, so you're a great person to ask. But what, what's your thoughts about Section 846, big picture and the goals and just any thoughts about how GSA and OMB are going about it? Absolutely. And, and, and first I'll say what's interesting without um, a political appointee at OFPP, you're really seeing GSA take the lead on this. And so you're seeing... I think for the first time, GSA, you know, with an administrator who understands procurement, really taking charge of the procurement world. You know, it's always been DOD in charge and, you know, OFPP when you have an administrator there long enough. But now you really are seeing, I think it's interesting, GSA taking charge, whether it's in the e-commerce platform or um, centers of excellence or shared services. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. And IT modernization, to see. too. IT modernization, you're role. really seeing... Um, I think GSA very much come into its own. I mean, that's just a little bit of an aside because, you know, this e-commerce platform um, is in some respects a significant initiative. I'm not sure at the end of the day if it's really going to turn out to be that way. Um, The more I've thought about it, I mean, I I think when I initially heard about it, I thought, what a great idea. I want the government to be able at some level to buy the way that lots of people buy commercially. I mean, uh, you know, many of these platforms, be it Amazon or something else, or just e-commerce generally, has really changed the way consumers purchase, and and I think to some extent changed the way businesses purchase. So, you know, on the front end, I think what a fabulous idea. But for me, that thought was closely tied to the micro purchase threshold of thirty five hundred dollars because that was a really low threshold, frankly with very little flexibility for contracting officers and others to access the commercial marketplace. And so at the same time, this new e-commerce platform provision was put into place and this process is starting to move forward. You also had a massive increase to $10,000 of the Mm. micro-purchase threshold. And so, you know, for me, there's a very significant question of, well, does that actually simply solve the problem? Does that give what you needed in terms of access to the marketplace to the federal government? I'm not going on these platforms and buying something over $10,000. Maybe businesses are, but that's actually, I, I want the answer to that question. Um, does does General Motors or Caterpillar or Lockheed, do they actually go on these platforms and buy above $10,000? Do they go on these platforms ever and by that kind of volume, um, I think it's an interesting question to to ask and to have answered because you don't want to push an e-commerce platform beyond how it's being used in the commercial right. marketplace. And I'm I'm a little concerned about that. Maybe the ten thousand dollar increase in the micro purchase threshold for the meantime, solve the problem while we really can have a hard examination of how this would work in the federal marketplace. That's yeah. That's a great observation. That you know, to to me, the increase in the micro purchase threshold for civilian agencies right now, um, you know, just a, creates a, a, a much much more flexible dynamic for agencies to actually use their current you know multiple board IDIQ contracts, whatever they are. Um, it gives them great a streamlines it immediately to be able to acquire those goods and services, as well as open market. You know, the, I guess the benefit of using your own contracts is you've already competed those as well. You've, you've, 
you've done the compliance issues with like Trade Agreements Act, which is going to, or Barry Amendment theoretically, or Buy America, whatever applies uh, on the foreign acquisition piece. That's a va- that's an added value, and you now can more quickly acquire that that product or service. So, Absolutely, um, that's a great point you, you make. Um, so, and, and just in following up of that, you know, just your sense in terms of when you mention how companies are buying, what is your sense? Do you, do you do companies go on the on these platforms with their iPhones like like I do and buy, and buy a lacrosse stick or whatever, but or a hockey stick, whatever? So. Uh, I certainly have heard that there are some B2B arrangements, but I actually think most companies are operating in a more traditional fashion in terms of having master agreements um, with their companies that are supplying products and services and requiring their people to purchase under those master agreements as opposed to um, just going on any particular online platform and making the particular purchase at that dollar value. I mean, it's a it's a dollar value issue. Um, you know, the companies have pretty robust processes in place, particularly government contractors, um, for proving that they got adequate price competition, yeah. that they actually, you know, got the best product that they needed to get, having real competitions for that, having, you know, longer term um, product and service agreements as well. And so, you know, the, what I see is a little bit of a problem um, in the, the meetings that GSA has had in the comments is that those companies aren't the ones that care about this, right? The companies that um, may or may not be using these platforms really aren't commenting on the federal government's use of it. And I think in the next stage of this, I mean, the first stage, I think the report comes out sometime in March, I think it's due like March 17th or so. Um, then there's a, another nine months before the next stage is due. So there's an implementation, there's a kind of looking at the implementation, and then there's this second stage of it. It's several year process before any of this would be implemented. I think that's going to be a critical piece of what they look at is what, and I, and I hope it is, what are we really seeing in the commercial marketplace? How are large businesses actually buying and what is their use of these platforms? Because right, the government ideally would want to, you know, adopt commercial practices that leverage, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of... In some ways, and I can't believe I'm saying this, consistent with the with the themes of category management, you know, execution and how you do it, uh, you know, the, the devil's in the details, but that's philosophically more aligned with Which that. Which you shouldn't be creating something that doesn't exist. Exactly. I mean, that's always been the government's problem is they're trying to create a marketplace or something that doesn't exist, and then you don't know what the market failures are going to be in that. Right, absolutely. So you when you... Talk, you and you mentioned the uh, sort of long term implement you know over several years and one of the things they've got to look at because they because at the end of the day Congress didn't waive any laws that apply to this to whatever platform comes out of it but they said GSA OMB you come back and tell us what you know your recommendations are do you see looking in your crystal ball you know any areas where GSA, OMB may go back to Congress and say, yeah, we really need you to take a look at this law or this statute. I, I hope so. I mean, there's like a whole set of pretty complex socioeconomic laws that are there for particular interest groups. And every interest group has a good story and a good reason for that. But it has made our procurement system incredibly complex, whether it's by America, trade agreements, you know, small business issues. There are good reasons for all of them. But they're really complex at this point, and it makes the system harder, more bureaucratic, more expensive, less efficient. And it'll be interesting to see if 
um, in making the recommendations, they really have the wherewithal to say that, to just come out and say that. We could all decide that because this is taxpayer dollars that we want to continue to have the money spent in this particular way. But I think we need to be making a conscious decision that, yes, that's important to us. Um, you can say we already made that decision, but I think largely we've forgotten about it and then just let the laws get more and more complex over time. So I'm very hopeful that they really will look at that whole panoply of laws, regulations, certifications, you name it, that are for a particular purpose and for a particular interest group so we can all make a conscious decision and have a better understanding of what it is and, and how it works. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, I, one other follow-up question to that, actually, um, any thoughts, do you think they could even tackle the competition and contracting act as it applies to e-commerce platforms? Any thoughts on that? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I kind of assumed by having the e-commerce platform that maybe you are assuming some level of competition if you, you know, do enough searches. Although the dynamics, if you use any of these platforms enough, you have noticed that if you keep buying the same product over time, it seems to somehow get more expensive and, and they, they have algorithms that yes. uh, seem to be very well suited to yeah, <laughs> uh, yes. making more money from you for the purchases that you want. And so there's a, I think there's a high level of caution that has to be associated with that too. Right, right. Well, Angela, we're at our next break. When we come back, we'll, we'll talk uh, about regulations and the regulatory freeze and just uh, w- w- what you expect coming um, this, the rest of this year and, and the, the current administration's approach to, to regulations across the board. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP, and she's also former, I keep bringing this up, Angela, former OFPP administrator, and that's because the topic this this segment is regulations, just generally regulations, those those, those, my favorite, <laughs> right? Those, uh, you know, those things that other, other than them, we wouldn't have jobs, right? <laughs> Careers, right? That's right. Um, so, you know, the, um, you know, with the new administration, there was a regulatory freeze, and then there was a series of um, executive orders issued, like the two for one executive order that basically said if you issue a new regulation and it increases burden, you have to eliminate two. Um, there's an executive or, order on regulatory reform, like each agency is supposed to have an office and an official focusing on that. Um, you know, what's your sense of how that's going and, you know, do you like the message? I do like the message and I do think it is all happening at the agencies. I mean, it is, it is fascinating to me how, um, agencies have really wrapped themselves around this and are looking very hard um, at, at at the regulatory issues. I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that reads the Federal Register every day, and it's amazing to me how few. You're one of, you're one of, the, one of those people. Yeah, huh? I am okay. one of those people. I, I am I actually read the Reading Room where it comes out the day before it's published in the Federal Register. Um, but it's fascinating to actually watch in, over the course of you know the past year and a half. You know how we've really changed the culture and the dynamics of regulation and bureaucracy. And it's not necessarily the specific regulations that are changed or taken away. It's the culture that you're starting to see. You see people in the contracting environment at the federal agencies that will listen to you when you say, I don't think that clause should be in the proposed the RFP 
because for the following reasons, it'll increase competition or it's too hard for us to comply with. It's not necessary. They are listening. They are reaching out to business. They want to understand how business is doing things, how products and services are working. It was pretty cold there for a while in the interactions between industry and the federal government. And all of these actions from the executive branch that have been, I think, embraced, not just by political appointees. You don't really even have that many political appointees at the agencies. You've got great civil servants that have embraced this, understand it, want to understand what's going on in the private sector and are reaching out as well as taking a look at what regulatory changes can occur to make the government operate better. Yeah, you mentioned the civil servants. It, it seems to me they're they're the folks who, like on the government side, understand how the systems are, 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 works and also deal with the day to day frustrations of the system itself. So, it seemed to me they they be they're the the right folks to be reaching out to. You know, they understand their pain points. They and understanding the fri- private sector's pain points, or actually even even having known though, I think there's a lot of folks. My impression who know in some instances what those pain points industry has, but haven't been able to do anything about it. Well, and haven't been able to talk to people higher up in their own agencies. I was talking to somebody in the Navy the other day who really understands the cyber world and really wants to make sure that the federal government is getting it right. And now just has a little bit more freedom, less bureaucracy to express what he knows and how he thinks it should be done and have people actually start to listen to that. And that... For whatever reason, whatever, how we were regulating things, how the statutes were drafted, how we were acting towards each other, kind of created these levels of bureaucracy, even internally, that people with great ideas um, felt like they couldn't put them forward. I'm not exactly sure why, but I do see, you know, a really it's interesting like a cultural, cultural shift. shift. Yeah. yeah. So when you when you look at the the framework right now with the freeze and then the two for one, the you know, do you, do you, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't say, and maybe it's not, it's a, it's a good thing that there's not a lot going on, right. In a certain sense. So people can maybe focus on the issues you're talking about and looking at what's already there. Um, but my question is about, you know, the burden issue and, and there seems to be, and we've heard it from, you know, cross government, there's a big focus on, regulatory burden and trying to really get a handle on what that is for the private sector and what it means for the government as well. Is your thoughts on that? Well, I think you also saw it in the infrastructure plan that came out um, on Monday. Uh, That's a great point. You yeah. know, in terms of reducing the the permitting burden, but you're seeing it in government contracts as well. I'm not sure they quite have the process down. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good uh, changes that are percolating, but proving that it's reducing the burden or the two for one doesn't seem to be working quite as well. I mean, I'd like to see in the federal register when I read it a little more retraction or change or even just implementation of the most recent national defense authorization, what we were just talking about in terms of the micro-purchase threshold, TINA threshold, simplified acquisition thresholds. Why aren't those out already? Right. You know, that obviously reduces the burden. So there's definitely a glitch in the system, if you will, or it's not going fast enough that things that you and I know right off the bat would reduce the burden of getting through. Some things are self-evident. Yeah. Versus like the DOD commercial item rule, which they claim reduce the burden, but I'm pretty darn sure it doesn't. And so 
the process, and I don't know the process very well at this point. It's a little bit shaded in mystery, yes. um, even from the agents for the agencies, I think, um, yes. uh, which is making it hard. So hopefully soon, you know, that can get moving so that um, some good deregulation and changes can get through. So it's not just a cultural shift. I think the cultural shift may be better for the long term, but you also have to actually get some of these things through. Yeah, and you know, if back on the on the micro purchase threshold. So w- w- what they're doing right now, because it's going to take a while to put it into the FAR, is agencies are have been empowered to issue deviations. So all the agencies are going to be issuing deviations to raise it to the civilian agencies to ten thousand dollars. So we're actually talking about a scavenger hunt to go find all those documents, those memos. We've got GSA's. GSA has done it. They. The CAC has issued a memo saying, go ahead and do it. You don't have to come back to us. Um, and I think NASA may have done it already. But okay, the- I was in charge of the FAR Council, and this, that's just nuts. I mean, there is definitely something wrong in the system if you're having to issue class deviations for a law. It changed yeah. in the law. Right, and right. So- it's, it's a number. It has to change. It's <laughs> yeah, like, right. right. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, if you take something like the truth and negotiations threshold, I don't think you have to wait for the FAR. It's the law. The right. law is going to govern right. here. But there's definitely some glitch going on in the system that you have to issue class deviations for something that was enacted on December 17th yeah, of that, last year. Yeah, right. It's yeah, it's it's a, it's sixty over sixty days. Now, yeah, right? yeah. So wow, that's something. So uh, we got a couple minutes left, and you know, don't, don't do a deep dive on this, but like shared service and government reorganization. When I think about the regulatory reform, they're sort of part and parcel to me. Like when you're thinking about how to leverage capability, the shared services piece, but also the ongoing look at how agencies are organized. Do you have any thoughts on where that's headed? I think it's conceptually a really good idea. Now, shared services is kind of a follow-on to the lines of business that started in about, I'd say, 2006 or 2007. And I don't think it's a great idea, but I don't think the government has quite figured it out. They did have an RFI that came out for payroll um, recently. It was a draft RFI. You know, I do question why there's not a broader like HR look instead of just payroll because they're, you know, intimately tied together and it's not just payroll. And if Uh, there's a bigger challenge in the federal government, it's HR, right? You know that we know that, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so that one's a little bit mystifying. I mean, I think the concept is good. Again, though, it's on GSA's plate. And so, you know, we're relying on GSA for a whole lot of things right now, which is great because I think we have great leadership there. But it's another piece that's on their plate to really make progress in the shared services arena and, and how that's done. It's a time, right? It's the time to get it done, but, but how it's done is going to rest with them. Right. And Angela, we're already up on the last break and that you mentioned GSA. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about GSA's role. We'll talk about the centers of excellence, um, IT modernization, just the, the, which you alluded to earlier in the show, GSA's, Sort of rising profile uh, across across government. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Today, my guest is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP, and we've been talking about sort of all things procurement today. A little bit of procurement potpourri, I guess. How, how, how about that? Angela? I like that. <laughs> okay, um, and um, you know, this segment I think we'll talk a little bit about centers of excellence. We it's it's you know, a good segue from shared services. The idea of GSA's roles in the uh, GSA 
role in the Centers of Excellence Initiative. I think we'll start by, Angela, what is the initiative? So you had a couple of things happening at the same time. You had an IT Modernization um, Act that passed. You had the Office of American Innovation that was created, um, and they came out with an IT modernization plan. And it actually, um, it's a very good read if you haven't read the IT modernization plan because it takes five things. It doesn't try to accomplish everything in the world. It takes five things. It takes cloud, customer experience, contact centers, um, IT infrastructure optimization, and then I think uh, there's another piece on um, data analytics yes. as well. Yep. And it says we're gonna we're going to focus on these. We're going to create a center of excellence to focus on these. We're going to hire an outside company. We're going to put that in the hands of GSA to implement. And then we're going to have a pilot agency, which they've already chosen USDA. Um, they've at least chosen USDA for cloud and for contacts. And I'm not sure if they've chosen them for other things yet. So USDA has a lot of interaction with you people every day all over the country. Um, GSA has the ability to kind of bring this together into a center of excellence to see how can we do this? How can we how can we better serve the public? Um, how can we move some of the things at the Department of Agriculture to the cloud and prove to other agencies that this is possible and what are the best practices for doing that? So conceptually, very good idea. There's a lot to do to get from here to there with all of those initiatives. And I think it requires a lot of people both inside the government and in industry that are willing to participate. I will say, though, that I've been quite impressed with my interactions with people at GSA that are trying to understand. Uh, one of I've been working on a contact center specifically, and they actually really understand the new technology, the innovation, the software that's available, how these contact centers are working in the private sector. Um, I found it quite impressive. And so they really are taking this on and reaching out in a serious way to industry. There's a lot more to do. Obviously, this is a, right, this is a big right. task, but um, I like the way it's progressing. So um, I think it's important for people to participate and, and to watch this closely. So, you know, and, you know, just think your description of what the centers are, are going to do and the focus and at GSA, you know, does, it seems to me there's a synergy there for, you don't want to use a fancy word, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> um, between the centers of excellence and potentially, you know, GSA as a shared services model, both to provide the expertise, but also the contracting platforms to acquire these is, do you think they thought that much ahead? Of I think anything? they have. I mean, you see it in the contact center specifically, because they actually have, uh, they've had a 10 year contract for it for the federal government. So they've put these two together, both the centers of excellence and how they're going to contract for it. I understand they're even creating a new SIN on Schedule 70 for contact centers. So it goes hand in hand. And I'm seeing people at GSA work both in centers of excellence as well as the right contract vehicle. So absolutely seems to be the right place um, and the right way to do it. It's not saying you must, right? So many initiatives have been you must. This is, we'll show you how it works. We'll, we're going to have a test agency. We're going to show you the best practices. You don't have to do this, but well, you're going to want to do this. Right. And where does it go from there? Do you, I mean, after that pilot, or what, do you have a sense of, you know, how much they're going to accelerate this? I don't. I've heard rumor that SBA may be one of them, but it's interesting. They're starting at agencies that you wouldn't expect, but it also are agencies where if there is a failure, maybe it's not a catastrophic failure either. So, um, Do you see this leading to 
Well, one of the questions that you know companies have that I hear all about a lot about is contract duplication, right? Do 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 you see this as an opportunity potentially? I'd further address that. I mean, you, whether you're talking about um, you know the GWAX or IT contracts, or even when you're, they think about IT modernization and how they're going to address that, do you do you see them? The you know the the agencies and the OMB thinking about that. You know, I, I haven't seen a lot of it in the documents that I've. I mean, I think it's right. an opportunity. I know Emily has it as one of her goals to re- continue to reduce. Emily Murphy, the yes. administrator of of GSA, that contract duplication. I'm just wondering if they're thinking about that. If you've seen any of that, I haven't that seen level. it on the radar in what you've seen coming out of the White House and the Office of American Innovation. So maybe it's really incumbent on on GSA. Um, to inform or, or make that happen, but certainly um, a way to get there, if you will. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things I also wanted to ask you about and um, is, you know, first we'll just touch on leadership um, a little bit. And if you have your thought, because I like to ask, you know, leaders, you know, you know what their thought, what makes a good leader, what are the keys to success, um, to, you know, moving an organization in a particular direction. So I like your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I've had leadership positions in the government and in the private sector. I think from my perspective, the most important piece is knowing yourself, knowing what your ethical values are, knowing what the lines are, knowing the lines that you're not willing to cross, being yourself, you know, comfortable in your own skin. Um, you're, you're always going to confront difficult situations, so you've got to be transparent and honest, but it starts with knowing who you are and knowing what you have to step away from as well. Um, Somebody told me when I started in the government, you know, if you're asked to do something that you don't think is right, you have to be willing to quit your job. And I think the same is true for any leader in any organization um, or you're going to be stuck with that for the rest of your life. And you're a much better leader if you're consistent, know yourself, transparent and honest with the people you deal with. Right. I get, yeah, and if you go in with that mindset that if you're, you, you know, it's, it's that you've, you address the stress in a certain sense, right? You're okay. I'm okay with the, with the way I'm going. And if somebody asks me to do something that I don't feel comfortable with, I've, you know, I've addressed that when I took the job. Right. Yeah, you can't fall right. too in love with the job. I mean, there's right. a risk of that in any leadership position, I think, is that you fall in love with your access to the White House mess or, your position and giving speeches or whatever it is, and then you cross a line, right? And you just see that. You, you, you see that with people who are in trouble for the travel right now who are political appointees, right? And you just, from the very beginning, you have to, whether it's public or private, you've just got to kind of reach an agreement with yourself of what those lines are. Right. So, and we have about a minute left, and I wanted to ask you too. So there is a lot going on. We've covered just a part pieces and parts of it today. Um, in federal procurement right now, it is a very, very interesting time. You know, if there's one thing out there that people may or may not be focusing on that you think, you know, that you would recommend the government addressing or challenging or would be a great change, what is that? Uh, So when the Federal Acquisition Reform Act was enacted, there was a provision, an authority that was given to the Office of Federal Procurement Policy to automatically exempt commercial item contracts from any law that was enacted after 1994. Um, and so it has never happened. I, I, don't, I cannot think of a situation where 
um, OFPP has actually said, oh, we're going to exempt commercial item contracts from this particular law that was just enacted. I think the government has got to go back and review those laws and see which certifications, which contract clauses, which laws you can exempt commercial item contracts from. It's really hard. I get that. But it's already there. It's already existing. There's already a mechanism to just free up those commercial item acquisitions the way that it was intended to be. Yeah, to your point, you know, you just saying that, and that's a great, that's a great one, because we earlier talked about the idea GSA has got to come back to Congress and say, well, you should waive this or not or adjust this. What you're saying is that OFPP and OMB, the government already has the authority to do that for commercial items. So, in a certain sense, you know, GSA doesn't GSA OMB can look to themselves. Right, but right. that's hard to do, right? It is hard They're to actually do. asking for Congress to do it when right. they have the authority to do it themselves. Like if you wanted an exemption from the Buy American Act, which isn't going to happen, um, you'd right. have to because it was enacted before this came Right, and trade play. agreements is a, tr- a treaty based. Right. Everybody's right. pointing fingers at each other and right. saying, no, you, take the, you do the hard thing. No, right. you do the hard thing when the authority actually exists in the executive branch right it's now. As part of that, you know, and we touched on this earlier, the culture. I mean, the, the, the you know, the government culture in a certain sense, the oversight, the you know, all the different stakeholders to try to be, you know, to take that without having, quote, cover for what you're doing. So at least if you're asking Congress, you're putting it on them to give you the cover, right? Whereas you were making the decision. And you talked earlier about the government being more interested in, like, not applying things or asking why. Do you think there's any hope? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I I mean, I think if there's any time there's going to be real change, it's right now. Okay. Well, on that note, I want to thank my guest today, Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.